Welcome to Impossible Podcasts, Doctor Who, Series 5, Episode 1, The 11th Hour. I'm Caleb Woodbridge. I'm Sarah Burrow. I'm PG Bell. And I'm Swindon Dobson. Here we are, we're turning our attention back to the gap in our run of commentaries between uh, the Tenant ones and the more recent Matt Smith ones. So, the 11th hour. So, this was quite a pivotal episode in its time. It was obviously after the massive popularity of David Tennant. Uh, establishing the new Doctor, establishing a new showrunner, establishing a new look was really important uh, to sell a new version of the show. And we can say now in hindsight that uh, it succeeded. Would you agree? Yes, Caleb, I would agree. Uh, Completely. If you think about it, it was probably a bigger challenge even than having Christopher Eccleston regenerate into David Tennant at the end of Series 1. Because at least there was an awful lot of continuity from one series to the next. You still had Rose and her family and the same uh, showrunner and the same group of writers. So it, it was quite a smooth handoff. This was, I suppose the nearest equivalent would be the regeneration of Patrick Troughton into John Pertwee all those years ago. Um, a complete change in production team, in style, in setting... Swithin's got that far away look in his eyes. He's about to I correct. think that oh. Derek Sherwin produced uh, This Behead from Space. Ah, did he? Oh, and thinking about it, Terence Dix was already working on the programme. He, he worked right to that. Yeah, okay, there we but, go. But, so but t- there, there are still some writers. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. Is a com- this, the show regenerated along with its start, mm. didn't it? In this case. It's actually, well, probably biggest, possibly uh, to JNT. Because when he came in season 18, and you had oh, the sure. spangly new 80s uh, theme, tune. Mm. theme tune and title sequence. You still had the same Doctor and yes. like this. It, it's as if they'd regenerated the Doctor at the end of season 17. It wouldn't have worked out too well considering that Sharda was the last uh, story of the <laughs> ah, season, yes. season and that didn't get finished due to strike action. Um, but it's a good 70s episode. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that aside... Mm. Um, it is one of the most dramatic changes in mm. some ways yes, uh, I would say in so. Doctor Who, uh, yeah, just in terms of changing the look of the show, the cast, the production yeah. team. And I think, as, as we've said in some of our previous podcasts, by the end of the Tenant run, the show was the star, wasn't it? It had become, in many ways, the David Tennant show. Matt Smith, to his credit, cemented himself very, very quickly. He, he's, he, he pulled off the not inconsiderable feat of uh, following David Tennant as the Doctor and not coming off the worse for the comparison. Well, let's get started. It's a longer episode than usual, so we've got an extra uh, 20 minutes <laughs> to talk about or so. So if you're listening along at home, press play now. So we pick off um, from the very end of 
uh, the end of time where the Doctor's just regenerated in the TARDIS and the TARDIS is about to crash. Uh, Geronimo! Yes. And it, it, it's almost a Moffat, a slightly different take on that old, very heavily used Russell T. Davis opening scene uh, that we saw in a couple of the Christmas specials and in the very first episode with Rose with that slow, or that, that very fast push in from space mm. into London. Um, it's like they've reshot that. I was thinking exactly the same. Mm. Um, so, and it's, it's the first of many nods, really, to the Russell T. Davis um, style, isn't it? Yes. This is very much... Um, a transitional episode you've got Matt Smith still in the David Tennant costume Um, it's it's interesting how similar in some ways it is uh, to Smith and Jones identical to Smith and Jones which Moffat has praised as being a standout script just in how cleverly it's structured he's saying that it's uh, cleverer than Blink um, I think he said he because um, he says that Blink wears its cleverness on its sleeve, whereas just in terms of uh, establishing a new companion, having the timey-wimey bits and pieces and stuff, um, he, he, was, he was yeah saying that uh, basically go away and study the script for Smith and Jones. I'll have to do that. Which he certainly seems to have done when coming up with this, although the opening... Uh, fish custard, which we'll be getting to soon, owes more to Winnie the Pooh than to Russell T Davies. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's having said that it's very Russell T Davies in style. It's still very Moffat in content. Yes. Um, that and, that pre-credit sequence aside, which I still f- think feels horribly tacked on mm. and unnecessary, because uh, this is really our opening, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, this this is pure Moffat. And and this is an instantly we've got established new title sequence it's sort of a bit more muted colours the blue and the it's, it's more ominous isn't it it's yeah. like the, the vortex has become storm clouds and lightning and it's much more the yeah the blues and the oranges um, different colour palette less pink yeah it's not it's not as big and bold and Davo as the Rusty Davis mm. which is reflected in the lighting here I mean which this is a point that some fans, including um, uh, oh, what's his name, Matt Larry, Lawrence, Lawrence Myers, bless him, um, <laughs> he's picked up on the fact that <laughs> this blue, dark, moody lighting mm. seems to become all pervading, particularly in series six. Um, yeah, well, um, there's a website which. Um, uh, documents overuse of the blue orange um, color grading contrast thing in movie posters and movie scenes because uh. uh, it's one of those things that um, because they're complementary colors, uh, move, uh, graders of um, movies in particular mm. uh, often go a bit overboard on, yeah. and in emulating that kind of Twilight later Harry Potter films palette, they've sort of gone for the same kind of thing. But we also have colour palette aside, even more exciting the wonderful Caitlin Blackwood is magnificent. who is brilliant as young Amelia she really is fantastic and I, I would quite happily have just had her as a companion for the whole series <laughs> there's a lot of people who yeah, said forget that forget Karen Gillan, she's terrific and 
Bond. I love this. Um, See, I get the impression that this was filmed as entrance. Matt Smith's big entrance, which is why that pre-credit sequence feels tacked on, because mm. we've already seen it. Yeah. And you, you think that this is supposed to be the big revelation. <laughs> and a great first line. Yes, and also, although the last few specials had been filmed in HD, this is really when HD becomes um, it becomes native to it, as it were. Yeah, it becomes part of the normal run of the series. Um, is this the first appearance of the new TARDIS as well? Yeah, then it is. the one that, well, in <coughs> actuality, looks purple, but because of the HD, it's. Does it look purple? Yeah, there were shots of it when it was in preparation for HD that it, it looks purple. Oh, yeah. Don't ask me where they were, but because um, they revamped it, didn't they, for HD, the, the TARDIS it had. Yes. There were images. They may well have been in SFX, I can't quite mm. remember. But... And we've and got glowy regeneration energy. Regeneration energy. Call back to uh, the Christmas, Christmas invasion. invasion. Indeed. Yes. Let's hope it doesn't attract any robot Santas this time. Yeah, nobody from deep space appears to have uh, spotted. Well, hmm. d- doesn't he say that the attracts are tracking him rather than Prisoner Zero later on? So perhaps they're tracking hmm. his regeneration energy. But yes, it doesn't seem to be called any invading armadas down on the planet. No. Don't wander off being a callback to uh, the girl in the fireplace. Uh, yes. Yeah. Is at this point, I think we have to mention um, when he was going in to this series, Moffat made it very clear that he was approaching Doctor Who as a dark fairy tale, mm. um, which I think set out his stall quite succinctly and did mark um, a break with the Rusty Davis approach to things. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that's, and again, this is something we discuss quite frequently on this podcast, just in terms of setting. Um, yeah, the, our story starts in a dark moonlit garden somewhere in the countryside mm. and it's quite overgrown and it's quite rambling and it's quite magical and there is a little girl by herself yeah, she's an orphan uh, which causes classic fairy tale trope and I don't think it's um, an accident that she's wearing red I think mm. she's supposed to oh, that's true. evoke Little Red Riding Hood to some extent mm. This food scene is a little bit sort of disgusting at various points. <laughs> um, it's not, it's fantastic. It, and it also really oddly reminds me a little bit of Requiem for a Dream and the way it's edited. <laughs> oh. In the editing of the... Um, some of the some of the editing is similar with the um, with the hob. Is this things. bit I dislike? Ah, oh yes. Do you know what I, I mean? I have a phobia of baked beans. Is why I dislike <laughs> this bit. You have a phobia of baked beans. Come on, beans. everyone was recoiling because I said recoiling for a dream. You're recoiling because of beans. Yes, I don't like baked beans. <laughs> What's is, is that just a dislike or an actual phobia? Uh, no, of it's just beans? a it's just a strong dislike. Oh, okay. Because okay. what, what's the what's the Latin term? Bad bad, bad beans. Baked beans. <laughs> don't know. I can't remember what the term is for a bean. What type of bean are they? Yes, yeah, so <laughs> I have hindsophobia, <laughs> Pete. <laughs> um, I'd quite happily watch the I next know, I know if you put a jar of um, peanut butter in front of Caleb, he will physically recall. Yeah, well, if, yeah. You put, yeah, if you put beans in front of me, I will also do the same thing. This is much less disturbing, which is the fish fingers fish and custard. Which, which Caleb did. 
Yes, yes. Video. what was it like? You, you can see the video. I, I'm not a fan, but I'm not a fan of custard. Ah, right. And okay. I'm not particularly keen on fish fingers either. So, so it was already never really going to work, no, was never. it? Instead, unless some strange alchemy transforms yeah. both ingredients. The two together uh, suddenly make you like them. Don't yeah, they? Matt Smith has a wonderful rapport with children, children. which is... Yeah. Which I think we um, really well we said at the Christmas special, didn't we? The latest Christmas special, mm. the widow, yes, the, right. the doctor, yeah. the widow, and the wardrobe. That's true. It's interesting in that respect um, with John Pertwee because the aesthetic is more per- is reasonably Pertwee esque in the um, countryside uh, type, yeah, type thing, well, and true. also that Pertwee was was Wurzel Gummidge, but he boring. then played incredibly straight. Mm, that's true. He, um, he basically did play himself, didn't he? Almost. Well, most of the doctors play yeah. themselves. <laughs> get the impression that Matt Smith just plays himself. Yeah. Yeah, but, you've seen some of the confidential, haven't you? It basically is just himself. I mean, Tennant gets away with it because of the accent, but apart from that. Mm. <laughs> I'm just thinking that at the moment here, Matt Smith really should be like a really hard nosed Scottish uh, detective, and instead of drinking, he eats custard and. Uh, and fish fingers. Oh, has has Doctor Who actually done a sort of gumshoe noir? Because I mean, Doctor Who obviously a program that's famous for for cannibalising other genres and other stories and making them its own. But has it actually done a proper sort of Marlowe esque? Not on TV. Effect? They did. Uh, Big Finish did a rather fun um, uh, special CD release, The Maltese Penguin. Uh, with oh. Frobisher, the shape-shifting penguin, uh, as this noir detective. Um, and then with Colin Baker as the Doctor, who keeps uh, popping in on, on him to see how he's getting on and trying to blow well, him back for adventures. I suppose you can... In the, the, in, the Invaders of, from Mars... Is that Invaders from Mars big finish one by... Um, Mark Gatiss. Mark Gatiss is reasonably in the noir. Oh, so. right. To, to some extent, but it's generally been done in the audios. I, I can't think of any which yeah. would be most mm. close to. Big Finish it. get to do all the fun experimental stuff, though. Musical episodes. Yeah, because I don't have fans online saying you're going to destroy the series forever because anybody who has the extension span less than five seconds won't listen. <laughs> so here we've got the crack in the, the wall, which obviously proves to be more and more significant as the series goes on. Well, it behaves slightly differently in this episode than it does mm. in the rest of the series. It's a plot point rather than just something that's tacked on. Yeah, yeah this this it episode is, is actually about this. It is based on whereas it, later yeah. on, the crack becomes the the bad the bad wolf, the bad wolf link, yeah. doesn't it? It then is just tacked on. But in this case, it's, it's also an actual immediate doorway to another mm. time and place. Whereas later in the series, it's just this all-consuming. Well, unless you're Rory, or the um, vampires in Venice who came through the cracks. Oh, that's true. And yeah. who saw the silence through it, mm. and remembered them for some reason. <laughs> well, they can go back. They probably babbled a bit more. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> assuming it was it was the species, the silence that they saw, and not some other metaphorical mm. silence, which might still. Well, actual possible. silence falls at the end of Vampires of Venice. Everything goes quiet. Oh, that's true. So, it still seems... Well, I'm not sure whether uh, it will become clear when it's eventually resolved or 
they're making it up as they go go, go <laughs> along mm. how the cracks actually work and how exactly they tie in with the silence. Yes. I suspect place your bets, please. I, I suspect it's a bit of both. Mm. He's got the broad outlines <clears throat> in place, but doesn't necessarily um, kept track of with strict consistency. And um, we also had another David Tennant callback, which was the you've had some cowboys in here line. Ah, yes. Another girl in the fireplace. Mm. Mm. And uh, this is the last we see of the psychic paper for a little while, isn't it? Because mm. Moffat hasn't really made great use of it since uh, since becoming showrunner. Yeah, it had it in last. Uh, Here's Christmas special. Mm. Uh, some lies are too big even for the psychic paper, okay. and they're um, trained to watch out for it. In um, a good man goes to war. Now there was a lot of speculation that the on the fan forums after the lodger that uh, it would be revealed that there was another floor to Amelia's house, yeah. mm. That's uh, true. which. Uh, fitting in with the whole missing rooms yeah, idea. He, he does make some comments I think it's in the 11th hour isn't, isn't it about there being too many rooms yeah which of course refers to this room here which is yeah. goes unnoticed but uh, well that, that's a room that's unnoticed it's not that there, it's, there are too many that's a room that was already there presumably mm. but also it's that her parents are missing that they've mm. been eaten by the cracks What? A real one? A real time machine? I can't do a Scottish accent. Because <laughs> you can probably yeah, hear. Yeah, so you can. Yeah, but you just demonstrated that. The other thing that Matt Smith is really good at is physical comedy. Mm. And he doesn't even need to try particularly hard just because his whole movements are... Uh, uh, James Willits described him walking as like someone squeezed a thoroughbred horse into a man suit. <laughs> I don't think that's absolutely true, but the, with the way he moves his arms, yeah, his, his yeah. Most general movements are uh, drunk are giraffe. Yeah. 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 Moffat describes it. Um, so, of course, this is the doctor now leaving. They're playing that up. So, even getting into and out of the TARDIS has become this big physical. Yeah. Do you think there's the, 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 room for a, um, a silent Doctor Who episode? Silent physical comedy. Uh, well, he's all. Well, he's yeah. um, he's been in the Laurel and Hardy film. Has he? Oh, well, 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 yes, of impossible. course he has. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, well, now that um, what's the name of the film? The Artist. Yes, um, which I haven't seen. Which I haven't seen either. But which is which is a black and white silent film, which mm. is being tipped for Oscar nominations. Yeah, it's, it thinks mm. to be nominated for Best Picture. And I haven't seen a single bad review for it. Mm. Now that that's broken through and has proved that there is a mainstream audience for this sort of thing. Ooh, the door but, is open. Of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer did a well, not a silent episode, but a dialogue-free episode. Hush. Mm. Um, yes, it was a, a almost completely silent episode. Mm. Um. And this, uh, the Doctor coming back too late, um, again echoes a girl in the fireplace. Yeah. Uh, both e- of it which echoes Peter Pan as well, going back to the oh yeah fairy tale, and also. Um, the time traveller's wife. Mm, yes. Which 
And of course, he does this to Amy more than once, doesn't he, as well? Hmm. I think every time he comes back for Amy, he's late. He's usually late, yes. He's worse than me when it comes to punctuality. Did you say something? I know. I'm, I'm, I, I work to what I call hmm. Spanish time. If you tell <laughs> me to be somewhere, I'll be there promptly ten minutes later. We had uh, a shadow run past the window, which um, was intended to be the Doctor in the finale, but in terms of um, fitting in with what we actually see in the finale, uh, there's not an actual moment where the Doctor does that. Uh, well, let's, let's, just, let's just pretend that it was Prisoner Zero. Yes. Nipping down the fridge for some fish fingers and custard. It's supposed to take um, some time to form uh, uh, the psychic link to be able to take on a person's shape. This is the old sonic screwdriver as well, isn't mm. it? Yeah, so we, we, we've already seen that it's uh, starting to fail. Yeah. Is it this one he loses it in? Yeah, that's right. And here we have the country hospital, shades of spearhead from space. Mm. Mm. They used the same hospital in Being Human as well, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, same exterior. And here's the first appearance of Rory. Yay! He knew he would become quite so awesome later on. <laughs> in this. And it's her, oh, goodness gracious me, and EastEnders. Yes! Would a country hospital have quite so many coma patients, do you think? Would a ward with loads of coma patients have so little staff? Probably coma patients don't need that much looking after them. Well, yeah, they need everything doing for them. Because they're not doing anything. But they're on saline drips and... Yeah, but you have to wash. Yes. Just get a hose pipe. (laughs) (laughs) All of you never (laughs) washed a patient in your life. You can't exactly do it. But no, you'd have more stuff than that. Does your beard grow when you're in a coma? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Awesome. Hey, don't go in a coma. Yeah, there's no reason why not. <laughs> He's going to be covered You're going to end up looking like the Aquin Phoenix <laughs> by the time you wake up. <laughs> Here we are. There we go, the Michael Bay shot of Jagger's yeah. legs there. <laughs> On that note, I'm sure James loved that um, particular... <laughs> he does love a redhead. Oh, right, yeah, I, that's why I was just saying he liked it when he got to the top. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. He's just a huge fan of um, the adult Amy Pond. No. <laughs> Currently has the doctor um, handcuffed to a radiator. Oh, just pure Moffat wish fulfilment from start to finish. Really. Yes. See also recent Sherlock. Yes. Um, with Irene Adler as dominatrix. Yeah. Oh Moffat, yeah. keep your adolescent <laughs> fantasies to yourself, yes. why don't that's, you? That said, you could argue there was latent feminism in the last Christmas special. That was the kind of feminism that's that's put in by someone who thinks that they know what yeah. feminism is about. We did, did we discuss this? Now? Yeah, we did. I think we did. I, yeah. I wasn't there, but that it really had a death. feminist edge. Yeah. No, it had. Really it, did. No, it was trying to be. It feminist. was trying to. It was, it was annoying. Did it fail? Yeah. I, I get well, it was, why, why? Because he went back like, to get a husband. I get yeah, that. it was like uh, should he go back and get a life partner instead? She's well, I wouldn't call it exactly feminist because it was um, uh, her whole thing was she's strong because she's a mother and because she brings the family back together again so um, you could read it as pro woman but not feminist in the modern sense. If it had just been the mother I would would agree but it's because 
the trees rejected the doctor and the son both saying mm-hmm. that they were weak um, and were the daughter who obviously wasn't old enough to be a mother and had never been a mother was still considered to be strong but not strong enough so you could argue that yes she had the potential to become a mother later in life but oh, it was the kind of um, feminism but you also yes. have the fact that the, the the three soldier people are completely useless except for the same woman, woman. Who, who immediately drops her gun to defend the other woman and says, I'm yes. trying to well, her rights as a woman. Can, can, like, <laughs> can, can we have a feminism swear box whenever <laughs> gender politics come up? I think we've probably hashed this one over yes. enough time. And also, we are talking I, 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 about I, I, a completely different episode Sorry, it's my fault. So back to on let's, the feminist let's, point. Let's, let's on the feminist, more, more fact, uh, let's fact. just admire Karen Killen in a police woman. Sorry, Olivia. We are also oh. told she has a French maid's outfit, which personally I would have preferred. But... <laughs> right. Oh can we, can dear. We... Oh, <laughs> this is right. descending into chaos. Uh. I just thought we brought Michael Bay in. <laughs> but yeah, it's not um, much slow mo Michael Bay. So, so... All cars flying at the screen and exploding. Yeah, well, yes. But yes, uh, there is. So back, uh, back to the actual episode. Amy's house is a curious shade of Tardis blue. It is. Mm. This is a very nice back and forth scene. Yes, and it's not often that the companion has the Doctor at complete mm. disadvantage. I think the kissogram thing strikes me as slightly. Ill-conceived. Yes, you, you can't <laughs> afford to live in a house like that if you're on a kissograms wage. Um, How yeah, much do you know she, about a kissograms wage? Well, I'm pretty sure you can't afford a house like that. But it? is a has a? Well, she, isn't she living with her uncle and aunt, or is it her grandparents? Her aunt yeah, Sharon. We told that we live with her aunt, but we never see her until the end of the series. Oh right, because she's in when they go back to her childhood. I couldn't remember if, if they died and she'd left her the house. Well, which, which her would have made by sense. this point have been erased from time by the crack. Yes. Even though the crack is actually next to Amy's bed and it hasn't erased her for some reason. That's not made entirely mm. clear. It's an ominous box. Um, but but yeah, because I think um, the idea is, is to show that Amy is uh, damaged by having been left behind by the Doctor. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it was actually cut from the big bang in the new timeline where her parents was she remembers being a kissogram and her mum says no don't be silly I talk talked you out of that in two minutes flat when you ah, um, right. and I okay. think if, 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 if they'd have uh, included that character beat it it'd have paid it off mm. far more effectively it, um, but yeah, yeah. As, as it stands without Without it being, as it were, resolved, it does seem to be a slightly let's just uh, let over Karen Gillan yeah. type thing, which is unfortunate. Could be worse. They could be pretending she actually is a policewoman. Yeah. In that travesty that is a policewoman. Yes, there was. So it could be worse. There was a lot of um, discussion of the filming uh, photos. Uh, when they were filming the scenes at Llandaff, uh in Ledworth Green, mm. um, uh, is is that supposed to be a real policewoman's costume? <laughs> I, I just see it as a, we've got the Pertwee-esque uh, settings. I think we just throw back to the seventh skirtery. Yeah, that's it. Bit of uh, Joe Grant. 
So we've we've talked over the first appearance of Prisoner Zero. Um, yeah. And of Karen Gill. And of Karen Gill. Um, but we, we have at least been talking about yes. Karen Gill. The um, the lead up to the, to the reveal in in the hidden room, mm. um, I thought was really nicely creepy. I mean, we've been left to wonder about it for a few minutes. Yeah. I was a bit disappointed when they actually revealed Prisoner Zero so quickly, and it just turned out to be a CGI anglerfish ang- snake combo. Mm-hmm. I I feel that it was fairly yeah. It, it's not terribly exciting, generic, generic CGI wibbly thing. Whereas the man barking and the dog speaking mm. is a far more. That's quite nice. Yeah, it's a far nicer, creepier idea. It's funny he's got the photo of the dog by his bed. <laughs> Means that much to him. And that's quite creepy that too. Is, really when uh, the man has the prisoner zero teeth. It's very, it looks very similar to, is it? Was it Orson Mars? Orson Mars, they have weird mouths, but mm. those have sort of crusty things, and there's something inside the mouth. Yeah. So it's sort of black and shiny that you can't quite see. And this is where it starts to go really Russell T. Davis. (laughs) In what way? Um, Well, not this immediate scene, but the lead-up to the the big reveal of the Atraxi fleet. Um, I I think I have been expecting, and certainly up until this point, they'd really been, Moffat had really been playing quite heavily on the storybook conceit. Mm -hmm. Um... I mean, another point in case the doctor falls out of the sky when a little girl is um, sort of praying to Santa in her room. So it's sort of equating the doctor with this kind of childlike fantasy figure. Who mm-hmm. Which we see, come we see quite aid. a few more times, don't we? Yeah. Most recently yeah. in the Christmas special. In the Christmas special, special yeah. Um, it, seems to, it seems to become part of the course now if, if, a, if a child cries out for help or... Uh, Makes a wish or says a prayer, the doctor will come to their rescue, uh, which is which is fine because they're, they're not overusing it, and the you know, context is different in each case. You do wonder how many disappointed children there are watching this series. Oh, <laughs> but uh, but he is very much supposed to be yeah, a mm. childhood hero. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still disappointed that the TARDIS has never turned up to whisk me away for mm. um, adventures in time and space. So is Stephen Moffat, which I suspect is why he's writing it. <laughs> so was Russell T. Davis. So is every Doctor Who writer. I think. Given the fact the Doctor's replaced Santa, they could reissue I, I, I Saw a Mummy Kissing Santa Claus to I Saw a Mummy Kissing the Doctor. Yes. Oh, it, it could be the best Doctor Who Christmas novelty record since I want to spend my Christmas with <laughs> Let's reform the government. Here we are, down by Llandaff Cathedral. You wouldn't guess that this, was in, that this was in the north of Cardiff, would you? You would if you knew Clandaff. Well, you would if you knew Clandaff. It is a very different feel to anywhere else in Cardiff. Mm. Yeah, it's completely different. You just turn up to the cathedral and it's just like you're in the middle of a village. Mm. Um, it's surprisingly quiet given where it is. Yes. Because in a big dip, I think it helps. Because you, you can go around the corner and then you're on the main <laughs> road. That's where Charlotte uh, Church lives. Is it? Uh, yeah. yeah, she does. It it seems bigger on screen than it does if you actually go there. Oh yeah, definitely. I think you get the impression that there's a lot more around mm. it that they don't they use, show. They use the space very well. In. Mm. 
She does not have an appropriate costume when she's running. Not the girl running. No, Doctor Who companions tradition never has, though. True. It's always been high heels and. She did always. She does have a theme though of short skirts. Actually, does Amy, but she does get sort of leggings and stuff later. Another Moffat theme on the communication thing. Oh, that's true. There's a lot of eye mm. eye themes as well, because you get that mm. shot of the eye, and you get a lot of um, close-ups on Amy's eyes as well. well. The motif of the eyes recurs sort of later on through Moffat's run as well. Um, I'm thinking in particular of the two Flash episodes from Series Six, where yeah. you've got the mm. eyes in the wall, and in um, Night Terrors in the Doll's House, they pull open that drawing as a glass eye. Ah, oh, yes. Oh, good point. Yeah. So I don't know if that's relevant or if it's just a little visual motif that <laughs> they're throwing in as they go along. But this, this for me is where it started to move into Russell T. Davis territory because we've got, well in this case not the extended family, but the extended community and the group of friends. Uh, and if it were a Russell T. Davis story we'd know, and I, I fully expected it when I watched it for the first time, that we'd be revisiting them later through the series and that they would be our sort of mm. semi-regular cast. We're two series in, <laughs> and these characters have never reappeared. Not even Big Hunky Jeff, who turns up in a minute, who helps save the world with his laptop. He, he, he's he's yes. now one of the knights of the Round Table. So, which which one is he in Merlin? Um, oh right, oh I see. A second, it might come we, we've switched series. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was a whole episode that I'd missed. No. <laughs> Yes. They go back and take Jeff, you that's a that camera. He turns <laughs> up with Rory, you know, in the, in the Big Bang. Ah, <laughs> you yes. have a round table and the Roman Rory. I mean, it is implied <laughs> that, because um, uh, you have the reference to uh, Robot King Arthur and the real King Arthur in uh, the, the Doctor's Wife. Um, uh, so there's a whole crossover episode with Merlin that we didn't get to see. I can't remember which night he plays, but he plays that. He, he basically plays the big, sort of brainless one, doesn't he? Yeah. He basically who, plays who, the. Uh, he seems he's cornered the market in big and brainless then. Yeah, because they don't seem to be able to get chainmail that fits him. <laughs> yeah, so it, it cuts <laughs> off at the uh, shoulders. So you know, he most, has most got it on his arm. He's got muscle top chainmail. It's his own. Do you reckon they're going to try and reboot the book Conan franchise with him then? Oh, it's quite funny actually. Guy. He looks um, remarkably like the play, guy who plays um, Captain Awesome in Chuck. He does. Um, who's unfortunately, I don't know his name off the top of my head. But that's look, that's very the much one like thing it. that's missing from the whole Doctor Amy Roy dynamic is this this Captain Awesome figure to come in. <laughs> it would be awesome. It would be awesome. If they, they could bring back Captain Jack to. Oh, oh he's oh. too camp. He's Captain Jack, he's not Captain Awesome. <laughs> as much as he would like to be. Yeah, no, he's not Captain. He probably starts singing the song called Captain Awesome. And you've got some of the uh, music is still using some of the mm. David Tennant era music. But this, I mean, the concept, you know, the sort of very big, bold, slightly silly concept of a fleet full of giant flying eyeballs, snowflake mm. things surrounding yeah. the planet, that's a really Russell T. Davis mm. sort of thing. But it, it, it is given plenty of little Moffat tweaks and twists. Mm. Oh, so, yes, uh, like the um, whole thing of um, the human residence and the realisation that that doesn't refer to Amy's house but mm. to planet Earth. That's a nice bit of Moffat uh, 
misdirection, redirection. So the duck pond with no ducks mm-hmm. has yet to be explained. No, it was explained at the end of the series. It's, what? Yeah, it's the whole the whole point of it is that um, things eaten by the cracks still leave traces and memories. So she remembers it that it's a duck pond, even though the ducks have been eaten by the crack. The ducks have been eaten by the crack. Yeah, just the ducks. Yes, that's why there's no other. How did the ducks get eaten by the crack? Maybe the cracks asked them Blumenthal. Maybe, ooh, maybe. <laughs> with his big eyes and his glasses. Maybe but that's why the vampires of Venice came through. They saw the ducks and thought, "Ooh." But the the crack is in her bedroom at this point. Did the ducks fly into her bedroom? Well, the, cra- the, the cracks have been all over the place. Oh, okay. The only cracks, but, so. sp- but they haven't taken any other kind of wildfowl. Just the ducks. I like. This. Here we go. They should do this again. Well. These, they've done a lot of these kind of tricks in Sherlock. And they've done, yeah, and they um, really like it in Sherlock, and they kind of wish they'd have brought it, done it again in this. I know it took. I think they did it in the Confidential. It took a lot of filming, didn't it? Um, I think it took like half a day or something. <laughs> but I really like it because yeah, they do do it in Sherlock a lot. There was a lot of um, fussing made by fans over the date on Rory's badge, which apparently. Um, uh, it it mean doesn't fit with the dates given at all. So there was lots of speculation that Rory had travelled through time already, or uh, something uh, or other. Oh, his ID badge. Yeah. Uh, She's seen. Oh, and here Amy is going slightly mad, madder, and shutting the doctor's tie in the car. Like the um. The scene in which she handcuffed him to the radiator, she's got him physically trapped and she's in charge of him. Mm. Do we think the apple is a is a fairy tale motif? Is it playing off of uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? I know, obviously, it's performing a plot function. Does, mm. it, have, does it have a face on it? And yeah, it's smiley face. Oh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't it, have no, a face it's on it. No, no, no. no, no, no. I, was, I was thinking it, it's slightly reminiscent of a pumpkin. Smile. Oh yes, that's true. Um, but, but you also notice the discrepancy in that her mother used to carve those faces on it, so it's a memory of the mother, even, mother. Though, ah, even though she doesn't exist she in this timeline. Good point. It all goes a bit glowy, <laughs> a bit slow mo. There's your Michael Bay shot. Is even lens flare? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's JJ Abrams. <laughs> Speaking Lens of which, uh, Benedict uh, Cucumber and... Um, Cumberbatch. <laughs> yes. Cucumber Patch. Um, <laughs> um, and Snow Clark have been oh, cast in... Uh, the Star Trek 2. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, have they? They yeah. have, yeah. I saw... Benedict Cumberbatch yesterday I was watching Cumberbatch. Four Lions Cumberbatch in Four Lions oh yes no, he's the police negotiator right at the yes. end. he's got about three lines but they're brilliant they, it's quite funny you're an arse man <laughs> I knew it <laughs> oh and here we Boy have George. Rory meeting the doctor for the first time Woo-hoo, Rory. Yeah, it's like she made me dress up as you <laughs> <laughs> yeah that sets the tone of the whole relationship really yeah. and possibly for marriage Although at this point, I did think Rory was horrendously wet at this point. Yeah, he's not, he, he was a bit dull. He's not great. He was just like he's there. He doesn't really serve a huge amount of purpose at this point. No. I mean, he's not 
any more significant in this episode than all the others we've already said than don't Jeff. come back yeah. than Jeff and all the others but he obviously does come back but he does thankfully get better it does say something that at this point any of these characters could have come back on an equal footing couldn't they yeah. well Rory really. is a bit more developed he's a bit more developed he's, yeah, he's got more running around to do but I, I was <laughs> I was absolutely certain that he and Jeff were going to be caught in a sort of ongoing love triangle with Amy through the series here we have the big eye staring down yes so Mickey Smith and Sherlock are mm-hmm. in Star Trek, Star Trek when's that due to Next, Next year, sometime twenty thirteen. Starts filming this week, I think. Oh, okay. But yeah, the Sherlock cast are doing well <laughs> for themselves with Martin Freeman as oh. the Hobbit. Yeah, and Benedict Cumberbatch as Small. Mm. This is fun with all the uh, the sonic screwdriver setting everything mm. off. They're not very attentive to the tracks, no. are they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Melted Sonic screwdriver, which we also had in uh, Smith and Jones, which oh, true. also had um, alien police force hunting for a shapeshifting alien. I'm, I'm amazed that character options didn't release a melted Sonic screwdriver toy with real smoking action. Yeah. Didn't they? <laughs> I don't think they like smoking action for under, under 18s no. these days. <laughs> or with real broken action, doesn't actually do anything. Yes. Completely authentic. <laughs> That'll be 15 quid, please. But it doesn't work. It's not supposed to. It's a faithful replica. This is what's paying for the 50th anniversary special, kids. <laughs> Get out there and buy them. So we don't have to. Swirly, swirly. CGI. I don't like this snake fishy thing. To the whole Prisoner Zero thing is pretty lame. It's, it's as, as, yeah. as, as an enemy. It's it's really about establishing yeah. the characters, which I think that's why he pretty much lifted Smith and Jones. Yeah, uh, it, it for is, that purpose. It is like a little bit like the um, the Sycorax and the Christmas Invasion, in that although the actual physical design and a couple of the bits of set dressing and things are quite interesting as an enemy they're fairly generic and they, they are just there oh I wouldn't just, say that just, the Sicker X are fairly generic they're just there as a device to, to get the well they are but they, they, they are no, more no, interesting no, no, no. I mean they, they, they are kind of like oh, the, the, the primitive far more, far more interesting than Prisoner Zero because we never it doesn't matter to the plot what he's done or why he's been locked up or I, 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 I see what you're getting at but the Sicker are, are the, you know they're the, the, the honour race Type it's yeah. voodoo. Yeah, I think the voodoo tech is really, really nice. And I was, I was saying in our Christmas invasion commentary that I was quite happy to see them come back. Mm. The they they did a very good sequel in the Doctor Who magazine uh, comic strip, uh, oh, The right. Widow's Curse, mm-hmm. which had um, the Sycorax uh, wives of. Uh, the, the sort of female Sycorax come hunting on Earth to find out what had happened to their husbands who ah. were killed in the Christmas invasion. <laughs> so right. you basically had uh, the female Sycorax, so a bit of a redesign. But um, it was it was quite a good story. You had um, yeah some really nice visuals. It was set in the Caribbean, I think, and so playing off the voodoo thing again. Right. 
Patrick Moore, our uh, celebrity camera. Yeah. Yeah. How old is Patrick Moore? That must be 80. Oh, at least. It's a, bit, it's a bit of a shame seeing him on Sky at night, night now because he's basically just a puppet. Mm. He just sits master. there. He's the games master. <laughs> he says about two lines and everyone kind of runs around him. Is it... They, they might have just sort of put some kind of gagging order on him after his comments of recent years about uh, women at the BBC. Oh, that was great. Was that I remember linking that onto... Uh, the oh, no, so I'm, I'm straight into the sexual politics. Yes. Oh, no. Right. Oh yeah. look, Mini Speeding Mini <laughs> I like Walker Which is like, you know, a classic British thing In the same way Didn't they saw all those London buses in rows And he tried to establish a very much of a London yes. London shot right, I mean, right. That's a kind of Kind of 60s Icon- throwback mm, Iconic British mm. bits and pieces if you, if you look at the uh, pre- credit scenes mm. where the TARDIS is crashing you take in I think every single London landmark in about five six seconds it, it, it's interesting that the computer is branded with myth uh, which mm. um, fans speculated might have further significance again if, if this but, had been a Russell T Davis episode that would have been an ongoing plot because in series three for example you had the Archangel network pop up on yeah. a couple of phones before uh, have the payoff in the series finale because um, it has the um, Greek character in it and mm-hmm. some people thought there might be some connection with the Greek character of the Omega symbol on the clerics um, oh, in right. uh, Flesh and Stone mm-hmm. Time of Angels which clearly links to Return of the Time Lords again Yes. <laughs> Omega's back. <laughs> Badder than ever. At least we didn't have people trying to claim that Amy Pond was the Rani. Which I think which had, had almost become a Doctor Who, annual Doctor Who fandom event, hasn't it? Who, name the character you think is going to be, be uh, Time Lord Do you remember Adam was Davros? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> in, the, in Series 1. And oh. the Arty head was going to be either the Master or the Veil Yard in Series 2. Well, that, had a, that seemed a little bit more plausible. Yeah. Well, the, um, any male humanoid villain was rumoured at some point to be the Master. Yeah. So, <laughs> Simon Pegg... <laughs> Was people speculated that Simon Pegg was going to play the master? He would have been quite a good master. I, I, I would have quite liked Anthony Head as a master. Oh, Anthony Head would have been amazing. Simon, Simon Pegg is the meddling monk, really. Oh, I still think Benedict Cumberbatch would be a fantastic master. Mm. Yeah. I think he'll make an excellent villain in the Star Trek film. Mm. Do we know so, where this hospital is? I assume it was Landock, but it's not Landock. Look at the fact I work there. It's definitely not Landock, mm. and it's not. It's not a Cardiff and hospital. We've got um, what's her name, Olivia. Olivia Thing. Yes. Olivia Thing. Olivia Thing. And and oh, she's in, oh she's in a movie, Tyrannosaur. And she's in oh. Rev as uh, Tom Holland as yes, wife. That's right. And getting the voices wrong again. Mm. Are those the one with the, twi- the two twins? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the two are those twins are kind of 
Do you reckon they're a, a Shining reference? Well, they're not twins, but I think one is older than the other. Maybe I'm reading a bit too much into that. But, uh, but it's, it's interesting, because I was about to say that the part of the aesthetic thing that you've already mentioned, mm. um, part of the aesthetic of this dark fairy tale, if you look at those two girls, they're wearing what look like Victorian party dresses mm. uh, in matching colours. So it's all quite slightly dreamlike and storybook. Mm. Um, so I, I did think with I really like the idea of um, Amy having had the Doctor as her imaginary friend mm. uh, I'm not sure that we perhaps got enough of a sense of that because we don't really I mean it's only at the end that we see the shots of her bedroom and all the drawings and dolls and stuff yes. I think if we'd seen a little more of that earlier on that would have um, helped establish it a little better because it's a really nice idea that uh, playing that part in uh, it's Olivia, Olivia Coleman Olivia Coleman thank you that's another Russell, Russell T uh, kind of thing that the, with the use of the mobile phone which I don't believe is used after this it gets used a lot less I think after this doesn't mm, it because yeah. that's, that's kind of like the modern day link to the series because Rose has the phone and things mm. And here it's just used to duck. Yeah, you don't get... The companions aren't given universal roaming so they can bring her home to her parents. He probably defaulted like Greasy's going to on his bill. (laughs) (laughs) There's a a short story in that where the doctor... um, the real reason for the, Greek, the Euro crisis is that the doctor masqueraded as the uh, president, as like a, a Greek official. <laughs> he he, he rang up their time. telephone bill. Have, have, they ever, have they ever done a story, either a short, short story or a comic or an audio, where the doctor just phones a custom service call centre trying to get, you know, his <laughs> on some new kind of talk plan or. Most <laughs> redirected or something. Oh, the ducks are getting um, uh, uh, called callers trying to sell him stuff in the TARDIS yeah. would be funny. Um, this the the child the children singing thing is something we see quite a lot as well. Yes. After this, don't we? We see a lot of the. Well, certainly in the latter half of um, series series six, six we yeah. see the, the, the sort of singing. Creepy singing children. Yeah. Yeah. All the zeros. The duck thing, uh, the text message, also adds back to Blink when she's pulling off the wallpaper. Mm. Because it says something like duck or gun or. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, under the wallpaper. Sally Sparrow. The whole idea of um, the doctor cooking up a computer virus in someone's bedroom in the space of about a minute is also a Russell T. Davis approach to technology that Moffat... Because Moffat doesn't generally use home computers and things as a get-out device, does he, for um, his stories, whereas Russell T. Davis mm. has the yeah, the humanities graduate's view of computers. <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't say this in the presence of Caleb, who's actually quite good with them, but um, <laughs> generally speaking, Russell T. Davis used treats computers like magic boxes that make stuff happen mm. um, look at the end of The Age of Steel and Rise of the Cybermen if you want a you know, particularly blatant example of how which but, Russell T. Davies didn't write but it happened on his watch yeah. so. and get the end of um, 
Oh, where Donna destroys the Daleks. What's it called? Well, I think I I think that's more with um, time lordiness being treated as a superpower. Yes, but it it still equates to Donna stands at the computer terminal, taps buttons, spouts some gobbledygook, and everything explodes. And the, the uh, Sonic Screwdriver did become the catch-all, I can do anything with this when I want it to. Yeah, mm-hmm. it became the magic wand rather than the Swiss Army knife, didn't it? Yeah. Which, though Stephen Moffat is far worse for his uh, overuse of the Sonic Screwdriver, I think. Yeah, oh, it's horrendous. The, the Flash, Rebel Flash, just makes things exp- just like disintegrate, like he's been in the microwave. <laughs> Speaking of the Rebel Flash, we have another... Now we have another um... doppelganger. Yeah. Ah. Oh, bingo! We ought to have been playing off of bingo. In retrospect, no, we now know what his tropes are. I like this little touch and just the realization that the doctor doesn't actually know what he looks like. Yeah. See, I think this this is quite an effective resolution. And the other maybe the pond is back. Absolutely, but it's it's character based and it picks up on all of these little. You know, seeds that have been sown yeah. all the way through the episode, and so you've got all the big dramatic Cloutus CGI things happening outside the window, and the whole Earth is threatened. But really, it just comes down to the Doctor and Amy talking and him sort of trying to resolve her problem, you know, face to face, and just being clever about it. And it, yeah, you know, it doesn't come down to techno babbling and explosions. And some nice editing just on the flashbacks mm. and the sort of jerkiness of it. The direction really does take another step up mm. the series, doesn't it? I, I think visually, um, Doctor Who has looked better under the Moffat era than uh, ever before, just in terms of uh, lighting and yeah, just general direction and visual look. Particularly last season, uh, Series 6. Series yeah. 6. Not looked. counting this horrible. No, they've had been a bit of ropey CGI in occasion, but the general look has been the general. Well, the thing I find funny with Prisoner Zero is you always see him uh, hanging from the ceiling, mm. but you never see how he attaches himself yeah. to the ceiling. Velcro. It's just that silence thing. will fall. So we've had the silence and Pandorica references. Yeah. The Doctor and the TARDIS doesn't know. But again, that's a very Russell T. Davis technique. You get to the end of the of the opening episode, and someone will mutter some ominous prophecy that doesn't actually mean an awful lot yet, mm. but will be referenced further on mm. through the series. I think, although it starts off like that, um, Moffat does uh, build build the story arc in a lot more as yes. it goes along. Because the the crack is revealed to the Doctor and Amy. After about four episodes, I mean, yeah. the time of angels. And, and then you have, yeah, it's not all left to the final yeah. episode to be paid off, but develops throughout the course of the series a lot more. Back here, now. So this is him calling them back to have a go at them, isn't it? Which gets referenced in *The Good Man Goes to War* by the um, gay Anglican Marines. They refer back to the time the Doctor calls the the Traxy back to her for telling off. Now this is part of the whole Doctor 
as um, trading off his legend thing, which later comes back to bite him at the end of the series when all his enemies try and imprison him in the Pandorica. And it's something that Moffat's played with a lot. Um, I'm not I'm not a massive fan <laughs> fan of it. I think he's probably pushed it too far, especially in series six, the whole idea of the Doctor of the Legend. I much prefer it the idea of the Doctor as an explorer and if he's too well known and too well established, too aware of his own mythos uh, I think it undermines his character a bit you just, uh, the, the bit just before this bit now was the uh, the Doctor getting dressed, mm. it's quite amusing because you have Amy evidently quite enjoying <laughs> yes. watching him getting, uh, getting changed which of course then develops into a somewhat one-sided thing yeah. later on, doesn't it, between Amy and the Doctor? I, I was never quite sold on the whole idea of Amy being sexually besotted with the Doctor. Um, because she's supposed to be his magical... He's supposed to be her magical imaginary friend from childhood, mm. who turns out to be real. Mm. Which is fine, but not really the basis for... lust. <laughs> no, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought. He's not the sort of man you... I, I would imagine her lusting after, particularly... Being fascinated by it, yes, but just sort of lecturing over. No. <laughs> With the doctor playing his board, it felt a bit forced, as all. I imagine it's it's more of a. I think it's more of a whole package sort of thing, isn't it? It's more the excitement. I think it's more the. Um, but yeah, I mean that scene does have her essentially just ogling him as he gets. Yeah, we can see her as a character as well. Do you reckon, she's allowed. Well, she's allowed, but I mean, as... not have just been letching over her. No, 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 no. no, no. Haven't. As, as it goes on, I mean, when she throws herself yeah. at him at the end of the Angels episodes, uh, so Swithin just punched the air. I saw a sea devil. Classic monsters. I do uh, like yes. this. Bit. I like the yes. Past Paul McGannis cannon. Yeah. Absolutely. This well, went down they... quite well, didn't it? I think. The, uh... mm. Except for those who wanted to excise Paul McGann from history. Oh, I can't believe that it wasn't until human was nature, it, human nature, yeah, that um, there was still a sizable minority of Who fandom for whom the TV movie was considered heresy, basically <laughs> the Paul McGann heresy. These, uh, you are half human. These words are heresy, <laughs> as the Emperor Dalek says in Parting of the Ways, <laughs> which uh, some fans took to be a veiled reference to. Um, the um the TV movie. Ah, oh, I've never considered that. So does that make the Paul McGann deniers uh, Daleks? Mm, potentially. So here we now have um, Matt Smith obviously in his own incarnation yes. of the Doctor's outfit. And is this the third or fourth time that the Doctor's stolen his wardrobe from the hospital? There was Spearhead from Space. There was a TV movie. There was this. But you know, fans, it's not a place to steal it. Outfit from them, but uh, but obviously this is the uh, first outing of the bow tie, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And the poor TARDIS is all fixed. Yeah. Of course, it's the first appearance of the St John's ambulance sticker on the door since uh, Hartnell's era. Mm. That's what made me remind me that it's the revamped TARDIS this time. The exterior is very much Hartnell's TARDIS, isn't it? Changed dimensions again, didn't they? 
Because yeah, the, the um, Eccleston one was slightly different. It was it was bigger and squatter, I think. Mm, this is, I mean, certain shots, which is the one just before that, you have a slightly purplish tinge to yes. this new, no, they, they, to I this think new one. I it's the, seem to remember them saying they picked a different shade of paint. Yeah, and it's, the, it's to do with HD. Ah, right. We said earlier in this commentary. So, um, that's because this is when they chose to do the new, mm. the new TARDIS. Uh, and he's left Amy again. Flashback. Cold little Amy sat on him. And it's obviously chase. not that same night. She's obviously about to have it going out and waiting for him to come yeah. back, which is heartbreaking when you think yeah. about it. Mm. But there we see her looking up and smiling as she hears the TARDIS arrive, mm. which implies that he goes back to her as a child at some point, which well, I was expecting to be resolved at the end mm. of the series, but clearly wasn't. Oh yeah, so it's getting to say, apparently Stephen Moffat said in the Doctor Who magazine production notes column that the plan was to have the ducks back in the duck pond right. as the final shot of series five that the TARDIS would leave and you'd see behind the TARDIS the duck pond with the oh. restored ducks but then um, they ended up moving uh, the final scene was in uh, the back garden and so it didn't fit in in the end but oh. they were going to pay it off again <clears throat> see there's me I went through all of series six looking out for references to duck ponds and <laughs> thinking it's still somehow terribly important that it's all going to be explained he, 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 well it gets referenced again in um, Time of Angels when he's talking about the cracks and um, how things um, st- can still be remembered even after they're erased they'd still leave traces right Two years. Oh dear. Peter makes you look punctual, doesn't he? Hmm? He makes you look punctual. If, you, if you're a oh, Spanish guy and he's on. I thought you said he well. makes me look punctual. <laughs> punctual. <laughs> I, I, I thought worry. you said punctual. No, sorry. No, he said punctual. I, punctual. I gathered that one. Yeah. He's on Gallifrey time. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Doctor's timing is even more complicated than, ga- than dating the Gallifrey based stories. And he opens the door with a snap of his fingers, as foreseen by River Song oh. in the uh, Forest of the Dead. Yes. I, I like the line, uh, I grew up and I can fix that. Hmm. It's that sets out the Moffat philosophy. You know? Yeah. He actually fixes it by taking her to a nightclub. Yeah, here's here's our new TARDIS interior. What do we think, guys? It's it's a nightclub. It looks like a nightclub. I I do I do I do like the I like the size. I like the different levels. I think it might be slightly too self consciously quirky. Mm. Um, it is a very nice set, and there's a lot of detail there that looks good in HD and stuff. But yeah, I. Um, uh, it's it, yeah, it's because is it Brian Hench, the chap who designed the Rusty Davis? Hitch, Hitch, Brian Hitch, um, was quite vocal on Twitter because he wasn't asked back to redesign it, mm. um, and he really laid into the new Tyler's design. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. The, the console doesn't seem to match the rest of it. I mean, the console's really cluttered and mm. covered in bits of junk and all sorts of Taps stuff. And bells and yeah, um, and the rest of it's quite clean. It's got those big, sort of sweeping angular lines and things. It's. I, I think they're trying to go for a sort of German expressionist aesthetic to some extent, but it's. Yeah, I, I don't think they quite hit whatever they were aiming for. I think if I think if the console had been a bit closer to the previous one, uh, with I quite like the quirkiness of it though. I quite yeah, like I like the blown glass thing inside the time rose. That's yeah. fine. Uh, and we've just uh, just seen the new sonic screwdriver as well. Haven't we? Oh yes, yes. So with the green light available from all good toy shops. I think there might be an awful lot of sort of empty space between the TARDIS doors and the console as well. It's sort of mm. weird, angular, empty space. That mm. you, and I know they played darts in it in Series 6, but it seems an odd use. Mm. If you think oh, that's it's a hard the crack on the console, oh. it's the Doctor doing his trick of uh, do it, doing his own investigations and. Staring at the console only. Slightly we have a lot of use, overuse of this console, don't we? In this and in then series in the, six, yeah. it's used quite nicely yeah. there. Mm. Just subtly, yeah. he does have another reason for bringing Amy along. Yeah. Not just doing Amy's pregnancy test. <laughs> yeah, for, that's for most the, of them. And um, Amy in her um, nighty is another very childlike. It's a Peter Pan sort of Peter Pan. Type thing and something revisited in uh, the uh, the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe with them yeah, going into in the snow and yeah. their dressing game. I'm glad I'm just dressing. More socially acceptable than fur coats these days. Yes. <laughs> and I do like this rev- last minute reveal of the wedding dress. Mm. Now, the second redhead that the doctors interrupted on their way to the altar. Mm, yes. It's a nice one. I actually um, uh, got to see um, a call sheet for the eleventh hour before it. We did. Um, yeah, you saw it as yeah. well. That. Um, uh, but one of the things I noticed on that was that it had wedding dress on the list of props oh. um, and so uh, I was like ah curious and then it turned up at the last possible minute <laughs> I do really like this trailer for the rest of the series yeah, I think it's an uh, excellent trailer oh I like Churchill Cyberman River Song. Yeah. Sweden's favourite character. <laughs> of course. Stonehenge, yeah, that, 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 that was the big return of River Song, wasn't it? That's the mm. first time we'd seen her since her debut. Weeping Angels. Mm. Yeah, there are quite a few returning elements. Oh no. Yeah. Uh, you're oh, not a fan of the Silurian redesign, then, Sweden? No, I must admit, I'm not entirely. <laughs> especially yeah, especially I... when you see the, the work in progress stuff. The, and the design of what they were going to go mm. with so much better. I think both of their classic series redesigns in series five, the Daleks and the Solarians, mm. were a bit of a oh, mess. And, um, 
makes the other one off. Van Gogh. Yes, and Miracial, also of um, uh, Goodness Gracious Miho. And James Corden. And Queen Elizabeth X, who's played by so- Sophia Canedo. Sophia Canedo. Oscar winning actress, mm. who played the companion, of course, in Scream of the Shalker. Oh, yes, with the, the alternative knife doctor. Yeah, BBC web series. Richard E. Grant. Yeah. And who adopted a really awful mockney accent for reasons that escape me. Uh, oh, that was com- gun as well. That was controversial. That was. Max Payne style. Uh, <laughs> the doctor shooting again. Uh, yeah, that could cause a lot but of consternation. He obviously wasn't shooting it at anybody in particular. He was shooting it at something, which he's done before. Yeah, but it did cause a bit of consternation on before. That's a strange amount, though. It's not as if the doctor's never used guns. Well, the doctor uses anything but guns and kills lots of people. <laughs> it, 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 it's, is- it's like it was at the end of time. Uh, oh, oh, what was it? End of the time, isn't it? You know, Doctor has a gun and he wants to master with it because it's a handgun. If uh, it was a bazooka, it'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it, yeah, if it shot CGI instead of bullets, it's fine. Yeah. No problem at all. It, it's like in um, uh, the next Doctor, they're perfectly willing to blast the heads off Cybermen with mm. uh, data caches. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was part of it was that um, Tenant. Had in Tenant's era had set up this big thing about disliking guns, hadn't they? The man who never <laughs> would. <laughs> the man who never would write that episode. Um, and then obviously to see Matt Smith, but I didn't have any problem with Matt Smith. Speaking of the Doctor's daughter, David Hurt, uh, we should congratulate him on his marriage to uh, Georgina Moffat. Oh, uh, he's married. Yes, so they got oh, married a few days ago. Congratulations then. I wasn't in Vegas, was it? <laughs> oh, oh, you cynic! <laughs> well, well I hadn't heard anything about the well, or anything. Well, 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 they 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 had, had a child to his head. Together, <laughs> um, my daughter, got, boy. Um, a daughter who oh, was born l- l- last year. I have no idea. I'm completely oblivious Ooh. to this. <laughs> uh, oh, that's good news. There you go. There we go. Guys. What, did we, what did we think of the eleventh hour on a rewatching? I think it stands up really well. It's an ex- exciting story. One of the things I like about this compared to some of Stephen Moffat's more recent stories is that it is relatively straightforward. Mm. And, yeah, I I do like jumping around and narrative tricks and stuff, but you can go overboard with them. It's slightly more complex in its plotting than some of the... Uh, Russell T Davies season mm. openers there's a little more of that Moffaty um, Moffatiness <laughs> to, to it he, he did have the extra 15 minutes to yes yeah. what, what did we think of the extended running time I mean, especially having rewatched the Christmas specials recently and I think we complained that there was some lag and some mm. padding mm. in a lot of them I don't think there was an awful lot of padding in that at all that seemed to fill its running time fairly neatly it did seem to romp along reasonably well it was surprising in retrospect uh, with, with with the exceptions of the tacton beginning and end, yes, that's true. I mean, it could have yeah, that would have shaved five minutes, minutes off the time, really. Well, the the first um, ten minutes or so with young Amy are there. No, 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 the bit where he pops out of the TARDIS appears like the first time you should have seen him. Mm. But it, it, yeah, it, it does romp along uh, reasonably well. Although still, it, it still reminds me a lot of 
Sutton Jones, which we mentioned before, which I didn't like the first time round. Oh, yeah. I was quite a fan of Smith and Jones. And I, I would like to see Steve Moffat's arguments as to the technical uh, proficiency of uh, Smith and Jones, because I think as a story, it wasn't great. Now, maybe as a script, it was, but I have yet to be convinced of that. I think it, in terms of setting up the characters, setting out the premise of the show, telling a fun story in 45 minutes, it, it does accomplish an awful lot. And I, I really like it. I think it's possibly um, Russell T. Davies' best series opener. Yeah, I think I'd probably go with that. Mm. Yeah, it's got some great lines in it as well. Both of both of Moffat's season openers have been very strong. I think. Mm. Oh yeah. I think he's good at beginnings. I'm not as convinced that he's as good at wrapping things up. Mm. <laughs> so like RTD, all, then. <laughs> yeah. Well, endings are always the hardest bit. Yeah. Well, I think with endings, you've got to be bold, and yes, you have to kill people. If you do, you're generally put, <laughs> put off. Bloodlust. Well, no, it's just you just cop out. Like, yeah, not like Russell T in um, in, in Torchwood, but anyway, I still did think. kill people in that. Though. Not enough. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a lot of. I mean, there's that's not just stuck to that. But there's a lot no, of people no, who, it, don't, it is, but, who but, cop out of, of but, killing people in the end, don't they? And don't. Well, don't I, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. Harry Potter, I agree. Harry Potter kills over a, over fifty characters. Oh, no, no, I mean Harry Potter the character. Oh, well, she did kill him. I know, but he didn't. He didn't stick. No, but she still killed him. But no, I was thinking more of the the Twilight franchise, which I've just finally finished. Um, oh dear! Where they don't kill anybody, and I was really no. annoyed that she doesn't kill anyone. Oh, no. Oh. So there's a lot of writers who just don't have the guts that they set it up that they might kill somebody and then nobody well, dies. I think that depends what you're trying to do and trying to say. Harry Potter would have been a very very different series if Harry had uh, stayed yeah. dead. Oh, uh, I don't think he should have. I don't know. You know, yeah, I don't think necessarily have. anyone should have died in the Doctor Who that we've had yeah. so far. But it, it's a it's a common I, theme. So it can be a cheap way to raise, raise the stakes and to give yeah. weight. Yes, to I was I was using it more of a, of, a, of a general thing for actually following through on your premises mm. because a lot of them tend to regard potential deaths of characters which is why I used it but just showing not following through with what you you set yeah. up that annoying Fight Club did that as well shouldn't yeah. I think it is interesting that the new series has seemed quite averse to killing off any major characters permanently because yeah. <laughs> however we don't know how Amy and Rory may leave of course mm. Um, they probably get stuck in a time loop and continue dying and reanimating <laughs> like Grand- Groundhog Day basically yeah. especially Rory has yeah. Doctor Who done a Groundhog Day? because m- loads and loads of TV series rip off the Groundhog Day yeah, I can list them trope, like, I can it? think of at least five on top of my head but has Doctor Who done a strictly the, safe, the closest it's uh, that's not even coming close really I was going to suggest the girl who waited, but that doesn't really count. No, it? it's not. No, that's surprising, really. But literally the whole, you know, the day resetting, you the shot of the the digital clock or, you know, whatever, however way you a, want to... They haven't really done a body swap either, have they? Mm. I'm, I'm, I think if they bring the master back, uh, doing a body swap story, sort of played seriously, played straight, mm. would be uh, really good. Cause oh, you could... no, sorry, New Earth. 
was mm. a body swap. Yeah, but that was that was played in a jokey. Yeah. Way. Mm. Uh, oh yeah. I was going to say I'm sure I was going to think it was one. Yeah, yeah. that was terrible. It <laughs> yeah. was bad. Yes. Because um, it would it would be a, a great opportunity to give. John Sim the opportunity to play the Doctor and uh, Matt Smith the opportunity to play the Master and be a villain and both of them to stretch their acting chops because often it is quite a jokey concept but uh, you have the whole idea in the TV movie that the Master's trying to steal the Doctor's body Yes, um, and you could play that in a really dark and sinister way that he's uh, stolen the Doctor's body and left the Doctor in a decaying, dying body and then you've got the ethical dilemma for the Doctor knowing that if he just swaps back then the Master's going to die type thing there's lots you could do with it <laughs> anyway we've spent quite a lot of time coming up with our own Doctor Who story ideas this podcast We've had plenty to talk about, but let us know what uh, you think of the 11th hour and Moffat's take on Doctor Who has developed since then. Please uh, leave some comments and we hope to respond in upcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to The Impossible Podcast. For more Doctor Who commentaries, plus other science fiction and fantasy reviews and discussions, please visit our website, impossiblepodcasts.blogspot.com, or search for us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, or email us via impossiblepodcasts at gmail.com. Thanks for listening! <laughs>